who was at a two-week follow-up with his cardiologist. And he was complaining about having problems with one of his medications. Well, the, the doctor said, well, which one? Which, which one do you have an issue with? And he said, well, I'm having an issue with the patch. The nurse told me when she gave it to me or gave me the prescription that I was supposed to put a new one on every six hours, but I'm running out of places to put them. The doctor quickly had him undress and said, "What?" I, he, was, he was nervous and he found out the truth was the man had 50 patches over his body and just been putting new ones on. They added a line to the instructions of that patch that says, remove the old patch before applying a new one now so that people would know that. A mom brought her baby to the doctor for an ear issue and she knew he, there was an ear issue. She could tell. Uh, the doctor wrote a prescription for two drops in the right ear every four hours, and he abbreviated right as R. Several days later, uh, the, baby, the baby's mom brought him back because he still had an earache. But now, she said, his little behind was getting greasy from all the drops of oil. <laughs> the doctor was confused. He said, what? And... He asked to see the prescription, and he looked at the prescription, and sure enough, the pharmacist had put two drops in capital R, E-A-R, every four hours. Rear. <laughs> I just had to make sure some of y'all were looking at me like, what in the world? I mean, you know. Sometimes... The problems we have in life aren't because we misunderstand what something is for, it's we misunderstand how it's used. Today we continue in our series, say what? Does the Bible really say that? With a belief that while correcting the sentiment really isn't correct in the application. Um, one of the most popular verses that graduation that you give in those cars and you do in things like that. It is is a certain verse, and we probably all know it because we've all given a card with it at some point, probably. It's in the book of Jeremiah, in the 29th verse, I mean 29th chapter 11 verse. And what's it say? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Hmm. Plans to, to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. And that's a great sentiment, right? <coughs> hmm. Many times we, we read the verse as this promise that, that God only has a good plan for you. You know, we, we say this to people. God has good things for you. I know the plans I have for you, says God. I know. God's promised what he has for you is good. It's good, it's good, it's good. Get ready for the good. But today I want to read in context this verse and see what it really says yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So... Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 1. This is the text of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exiles, the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the court officials, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metalsmiths had left Jerusalem. The letter was sent by Elisab, son of Jephon, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, had sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. 
the letter stated, This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when it has prosperity, you will prosper. For this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. For they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place. I deported you from. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come to you right now and we thank you and we praise you for your blessings. Father, we ask right now that you would take this time this morning, use it for your glory. Father, use me as the best of the words that I speak to yours and yours alone. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we ask all these things in the name of your son Jesus and for his sake and all God's people said. There's a lot more to Jeremiah chapter 29 than verse 11. There's a lot more there than simply God saying, I know the plans I have for you, plans to bring you good. That's, there's a lot more there. But the first thing we have to see is that the you in this verse is not about a me, it's about a we. So often we, we look at this verse and we, and we claim it as this individual promise. This is something that God promised to me. But in the context of this, in this passage, God isn't talking to a person. He's talking to a community. He's talking to a nation. He's talking to a group of people. He is talking to the nation of Israel, specifically the part of the nation of Israel who were already in exile. We do a disservice to this scripture if we simply claim it as an individual promise. Because there is so much more richness to this than one person being promised that they're going to be blessed. Because when God begins to speak to the community here, He is speaking to the group as a whole. And so these people are hearing this and going, okay, so the question is, did it not apply to individuals? Well, of course it applies to individuals, but only as they're part of the community. Only as it pertains to them being in the community. The community overall was to be blessed. The community overall was to be brought to a better place. The community's promise is here. Yes, the individual was going to be blessed, but the individual was going to be blessed through the community. In the life of believers today, in the church today, this means that individuals will be blessed, but not separately from the church community. There are so many people who want to tell you that I can be a believer and worship God and not go to church. And that's, that's, that's not really true according to what Scripture says. 
Scripture says to not forsake the, the gathering. Scripture says to, ought to come together because we need this. We find a blessing here. We should find a blessing here. Maybe we're not. There's a reason why during the three months we were apart that all of us wanted to be back together. Because there's a blessing that comes from being together here in the same place. Whether or not we're touching each other, whether or not we're doing any of those things, the fact that we can see each other does something. You know, Carrie, she's going to look at me now. So. <clears throat> she's always been the introvert in our relationship. Anybody's an introvert compared to me, but still. She's always been the introvert. And she really believed. She really believed she would love to move to a cabin and nobody ever be around and she would be just fine if it was just us. Two months in, I can't handle this anymore. I need to see somebody. I understand. How do you think I feel? The promise here isn't for me. It's for we. It's for the community. There's something that, that happens here that we have to understand. But also, this verse speaks of long-range planning, not present circumstances. When we read this context, it's something wholly different than we want it to be, right? Because we hand this card out at graduation that says, I know the plans I have for you. And we send these people out into the world thinking, man, God is going to bless me because I'm a Christian. Nothing's going to be hard. And then they get to college. Whew. That hurt. The world hurt. Something happened. And I don't know how to handle it. Well, when this context comes up, the promise here is 70 years out. God says, when 70 years have been completed, I will come and get you. When 70 years have happened, I will come and get you. This wasn't a promise they could claim right then. This was a promise for the future. A promise way out there. God literally says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and daughters. Daughters of marriage. What? This, this isn't a... This can't be what the, the exiles want to hear. They're not in Israel. They're not in the land. They're in Babylon. All they want is to hear that God is going to come and take them and put them back where they're supposed to be. That's what they want. That's what they need, right? But then God says, Jeremiah, send them a letter and tell them it's going to be 70 years. It's going to be 70 years. Build your houses. Plant your gardens. Get married. Live your life. I mean, before he even says the 70 years, he doesn't even have to tell them it's going to be 70 years because when you just think about what he says, build houses and live it. Okay. Takes a couple months at least to build a house. So there's a couple of months. Plant gardens and eat their produce. 
There's a few more months you're going to have to wait for the garden to come up and then eat the produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Well, there's a little bit more. And then those sons and daughters married them off. And let them have kids. They had to know right then, this was 20, 30, 40 years God was talking about. That's not what they wanted to hear. They were waiting for God to say, I'm coming to get you right now, but this is a promise of 70 years out. This isn't a promise of right now. It's a promise of long-range planning. Their present circumstances, they didn't want to hear about. When we claim this promise, we have to understand that. When we claim the promise that we know the plans that God has for us, we have to know that those plans may be way out there somewhere. Those plans may be down the road. Those plans may be the time that we're not even thinking about. Those plans may be out there because the context of this verse is long-range planning. But also the context of this verse makes it clear that God doesn't have only good things planned. you're 50 years old and you've been carted off into Babylon and the letter comes and God says in 70 years I'm going to take you home that means you're never going home that means you're going to die in Babylon most of the people getting this letter were going to die in Babylon they're never going home that's why the community aspect of this promise is so important. Because those people can't sit there and think, well, God had what was best for me. I'm dying in Babylon. I'm not going to be buried back home. I'm going to be buried in a foreign land. One of, my, one of my favorite psalms that everybody else just can't stand that is my favorite is Psalm 137. And I love it because it expresses the pure frustration of the Israelites in Babylon. And it starts, and it's probably my favorite because it was the first paper I ever did in school. But by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There we hung up our lyres on the poplar trees, for our captors there asked us for songs, and our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said today in Jerusalem. Destroy it. Destroy it down to its foundation. Daughter, Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who pays you back what you have done to us. Happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. These were the people that Jeremiah is writing this to. And they've just been told, <coughs> you're probably not going home. You're probably going to to die in Babylon. And when you read the rest of Jeremiah, when you read the rest of the book and you know the history that's going on here, it's not just good things coming. 
Jerusalem's still going to fall. The temple's still going to be destroyed. The rest of Israel is still going to be brought into exile. This verse doesn't promise that God is only going to bring good things. In context, we find the opposite. Scripture is clear here that God was behind the exile. We're uncomfortable with that because God is love and God is good and everything else, but God was behind the exile. God is the one who sent them out. He's the one who brought in the Assyrians. He's the one who brought in the Babylonians. He's the one behind the exile. He used these forces of evil to do what he told them was going to happen. And yes, it happened because of their free will, because of the choices they made, but God still allowed it to happen. And so we're sitting here, we look at this and we go, wait a minute. Does God have good things planned for us or not? Brother Troy, I hate this series. You keep ruining my favorite verses. <laughs> of course he has good things for us. God does promise a hope and a future, but he doesn't promise it'll all be good. That's the key. He never promises it's all going to be good. He doesn't promise we're only going to have good things. Our problem is we set up that way sometimes to new believers. Come to Jesus and it's all going to be okay. Well, yeah, it'll all be okay at some point. But you're still going to struggle. You're still going to have things that, that go wrong. You're still going to have all this stuff that blows up. But we're promised in Romans 8, verse 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. He doesn't say God causes all things to happen to me. But he says he takes all of this stuff and he makes it work together for good. He takes it and he makes it work in a way that is ultimately for my good. That's really what he's saying to Israel here through Jeremiah. In 70 years, I'll bring you back. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give off your daughters in marriage. Live there and pray for the city that you're in to be blessed because when it prospers, you'll prosper. That's what he says. All things work for the good of those who love him. Yes, God knows the plans he has for us. Yes, ultimately for those of us who are in Christ, their plans for a hope and a future. Their plans that we can we can stake in the ground and say this is it. Because later in Romans eight verse thirty one says, "If God is for us, who can be against us?" <coughs> the devil's working on me this morning. I can't breathe, but I ain't giving him an inch because I know who our God is, and I know what He's capable of, and I know what He's doing. Because no matter what we're going through, no matter how hard life is, no matter what muck or mire we find ourselves in, no matter what free will choices we've made that have taken us out of where we want to be, as Paul says here in Romans 8, 38, 39, I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels, 
become hostile powers, height or debt or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can't. We can't be taken away. We can't be separated. He's got us in his right hand and nobody can snatch us out. And it doesn't matter how bad the situation may look because in the end, Jesus wins. I listened to a football game two weeks ago. And it was six-man football, so it moves fast. But in the first quarter, the team was down 21 to 0. Pretty much you wanted to turn it off because you were like, oh, this isn't going to be pretty. Because in, in six men, once you hit 45 points more than the other, the game is over and you go home. So if it's 45 to 0 at halftime, you're going home. There's no more game. It's done. I always think this is done. But then I watched as this team slowly fought their way back and won the game. So often, we find ourselves in the midst of the hardest parts of our life, and we want to turn off the broadcast and we listen. But the truth is, we need to dig in and trust in God because in the end, we know that he has plans for us to prosper us somewhere down the line. That the trial that I'm going through isn't going to be anything compared to the victory that I'm going to see. Man. Because in the end, God promises that those who were his have the greatest blessing waiting. But the road may be tough. The road may be hard. There's a fundamental change, though, between Jeremiah and the New Testament. <coughs> For Israel, the promises of God were tied in the land. The reason there were two schools of thought in Israel, you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, you had the Pharisees who believed in life after death. That was a huge departure from traditional belief in Jewish times. Because in Jewish times, in the Old Testament, it was more or less, you die and it's over. You go to a place of darkness and how you live on, live on is through your kids. And that's it. You had the Pharisees. They believed in the afterlife. And yet Sadducees who didn't believe in the afterlife. Now you remember that, right? Remember that because that's why they were sad, you see. That's how you remember it. But the reason they didn't believe was because their promise was tied to the land. I will bring you back. That's the promise here. I know the plans I have for you 
the plans that are for your welfare and not for your destruction, wants to give you a hope and a future. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to put you in the land from every nation that you have gone to. I'm going to bring you back. That was the promise to Israel. But for believers today, the promise is tied to another land. A land that's out there, an eternal land. A land that cannot be corrupted. A land that cannot be destroyed. A land that allows us to know that we have a hope in the future no matter what this world brings. It doesn't matter what this world looks like, what this country looks like, or anything else. What matters is we have a hope in a place that God has prepared for us. That is the land. That is what we long for. That is the hope in the future. We have to do what God says to do. Live our lives. Seek to follow Him. And in the end, His promise is to work out the things of this world for you. He finished by saying to the people in Babylon, that you will call to me and I will hear you and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Are you seeking Him with all of your heart today? That's the only question that matters. We're promised an eternity with Him in heaven. We're promised that land far away. We're promised that we know Jesus. But I don't know why we don't claim the promise that comes after that more than we claim the promise of the verse today. You will seek me and you will find me when you search me with all your heart. That to me is such a more powerful promise. That to me is, is hope. When you seek me, you will find me. We often go through situations in life where we say, God, where are you in this? Seek me with all your heart and you will find me. Somebody asked me one time, Where was God on September 11th? My answer, I don't know if it shocked them or if it just made them mad, but I said he was on the 83rd floor of the World Trade Center. He was on seat 3B of Flight 93. God was with all those people in all those places where all the tragedy occurred. God was there. When we see evil and when we see suffering, it doesn't mean that God isn't there. It just simply means that the people of God 
possibly aren't doing their job. That's all it means. Because God's in the suffering. God walks with people through their suffering. Maybe this morning, you felt cheated because somebody told you a long time ago that God has plans for you to give you a future and a hope and you haven't had the life you were supposed to have because it hasn't been all sunshine and roses. Well, let that go today and know that the future is still waiting. But what God said to those people wasn't simply you're going to have a great life. It was you'll be blessed when you bless others. Even back then. Maybe this morning you want to pray. The altar is open. I'll pray with you. Maybe you want to surrender to missions or ministry. Maybe you want to join this church in membership. Maybe this morning you've never known Jesus as your Savior. Maybe you've never taken the step to say, I want to make him my Lord. Now would be a great time to do it. Wherever you're at, whatever you need, give it to him. Pray.